Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode with Dr. Stephen Kirschblum. My name is David, and I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Marla, and I'm your other host. And today we are super excited. We're going to be discussing the paper titled Characterizing Natural Recovery After Traumatic Spinal Cord Injury. This paper was published in the Journal of Neurotrauma by Dr. Kirschblum et al. in 2021. And this paper was submitted by Asia's International Standards Committee. And as Dave mentioned, guest today is Dr. Kirschblum. Stephen Kirschblum is a professor and chair of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, and the chief medical officer for Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. He is the co-director of the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury Model Systems and co-director for the Center for Spinal Stimulation at Kessler Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Kirschblum. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. So we're going to jump right into some questions, some conversation. just want to set the frame of reference for everyone. Today, we're going to be referring to the International Standards for Neurological Classification of Spinal Cord Injury Test as the INSCI exam, just so everyone's on the same page for that abbreviation. So just to start things off, what was the goal or the motivation for the authorship team in writing this paper? So really a great question. The motivation was that we have this INSCI examination and the age impairment scale. And the original goals of the examination classification was really to standardize definitions and terminology and establishing a common language within the field. And also to improve sensitivity of change of, of issues. It was not developed as a prognosticator of neurological recovery. But over the years, the age impairment classification and that came from the examination became used for that purpose. As I had the chance to speak to people and and certainly within the field and my colleagues in medical and other professional areas of spinal cord injury, realizing that there was confusion about certain aspects of the examination and classification in regards to prognostication. People, for example, were mixing up some of the studies that were done by the older definitions that were used, the Frankel scale, and perhaps we can talk about that later if you want, versus the sacral sparing revisions. And so therefore it was to have a one-stop shopping of review of the literature over the course of the last number of decades so that people could have a source to uh, perform research and have baseline for that or discussing prognostication with groups of patients and have the data at their fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I think at least myself having gone through training and learning kind of the INSCI exam and learning the Asia grade, you know, we, we sort of are learning it. This is what this means and not really how it affects the patient in the long term. And so I think this paper, at least for me as a clinician, was extremely helpful in sort of having that back and forth conversation with the patient. This is, you know, this is what I'm actually trying to get at by doing this exam. Um, how do you think the paper in the long term will affect how clinicians are able to communicate with their patients? based on kind of this new topic of neurological recovery based on their initial AIS grade? So that's, you know, really important topic that you mentioned. And I think that it goes beyond just simply what the paper is. 
this paper gave information based upon data for groups of patients. And not so much so that for every patient that you see, that you give them a absolute, this is the predictor of their recovery. So what I wanted to do is uh, present the statistics for large groups of patients. And then when we talk to individuals, remembering that they're still an individual, not a statistic. But it does give you a sense of sort of the information that you'll give. But I also think that it's not only the data of what we say, but how we say it that really is critical and that goes beyond this paper. It's other papers that I've had the chance to write in the past and understand the benefits of understanding the neurologic predictors of recovery, but that it's not the end of the conversation that we will have with patients. And perhaps if we have a few minutes, we can talk a little bit about that at the end of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely caught my attention. I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of how we can optimize that conversation. And I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what matters most is involving the person that we're talking with in their care and creating that dichotomous relationship where we're both kind of working together. So I would love to hear your input on that. Well, if we have a minute now, let me just say this. You know, there are so many important aspects of understanding prediction or prognostication of where neurological recovery will come, will bring us. But neurological recovery really for us in the field of spinal cord injury is also functional capability. What can the person do? And that there's so much we can teach patients through the comprehensive rehabilitation that will enhance their lives, even if the prognosis for significant recovery may not be great. I'm concerned that we shouldn't take away hope of patients. If we were to tell them, for example, well, they're an age impairment scale A, chances are poor. And I don't think that's really what we as spinal cord specialists should be doing, even within this, with this knowledge. We can use general guidelines on prognosis, but I think that there really is, it's fine to give hope a little bit for the best, but also plan for the worst with patients. And I just wanna say this lastly, Spinal cord injury professionals are trained to examine and diagnose, classify, and treat, and really have their tools now to prognosticate as well. But the delivering the news to patients, even if they have a poor prognosis, is really a different skill that needs to be learned because the way that we deliver the news plays an integral role in the patient's ability to perceive and process the information and it helps them in moving forward with their life. So I think that these are really important aspects to take away. So do you think that the way that the information is communicated to the patient would influence their memory of their results and then the way that they then took those results because you bring up the exam as a common language, that they communicate their results to care providers, other clinicians, but maybe also caregivers? Yeah, I think that the the knowledge that we gain from the examination and their classification is critical in so much decision-making that we have for patients, especially because the length of stay in rehabilitation may be short, much shorter than it was, for instance, the beginning of my career. So this really helps us plan for what the future will be. We have to know what the goals will be in the short term as well as the long term. Equipment, medical interventions, Medical decision-making are all really important things, family education. So those are important. But then also, Dave, for what you had mentioned, the way that we deliver it and the way we discuss it also makes a difference. 
there is no doubt, and we have this in the spinal cord literature, we have this from the cancer literature as well, that the way that we deliver news to patients makes a difference in how they understand it, how they cope with it, how it impacts their mood, their anxiety. And that all goes into their quality of life and being able to go back into the community, all of which are our goals within the spinal cord injury and especially rehabilitation world. So one more follow-up question there. Do you know the reliability of self-report INSCI outcomes, so level and grade in people who have chronic spinal cord injuries? Dave, you asked such great questions. These are uh, all reflect on some of the papers that I've had the chance to write in the past with some of my colleagues around the country. That paper was done with Rita Hamilton and the group down at Baylor at our center here. And we did is we asked patients specifically uh, how they felt about their sacral sparing standpoint. And interestingly enough, self-perception is fairly good when people say that they don't have let's say sacral sparing, but not as good when they say they do have it. So we compared patients in those situations to the actual exam, and that's what we found. And I know that there are other people doing that work, which is really so important in this day and age of where we have virtual visits to be able to really understand without necessarily having to get the patient on the table and do the exam, but recognize that the exam is much more than just sacral sparing. It's also looking for uh, changes in in the myotome, in dermatome, but then also aspects of the exam, looking at the patient, their skin. So this is a really important aspect. And while I was talking about my colleagues for, for that paper, I should mention really great colleagues that I had for this paper that we were talking about. We have uh, Dr. Snyder, who was a spinal cord injury fellow at the time that we wrote the paper. She's just fantastic and, and young up and coming superstar, I believe in the field. Dr. Aaron was a, uh, is a physiatrist trained in Turkey who then uh, was performing a postdoc fellowship with me. And uh, Dr. Jim Guest, who really knows no, needs no introduction, uh, he's certainly a well-known neurosurgeon down at the University of Miami, at Miami Project, who I, is, is, a, is a real close colleague and I've had the pleasure of working with him on a number of different projects and felt that he would add his perspective to it as well. So one question as professionals, spinal cord injury professionals, how do you think we could use individually, you talked about it, but the strength of our maybe scientific societies or our organizations to help with this communication, maybe help with the memory, but also help us all talk about these people's in-ski level and grade? I think that one of the most important things we can do as a field is make sure that everyone understands the examination how to perform the examination, and also understands the age impairment scale classification. This is an issue that I think is really important because a number of papers have come out to show that there's still some areas of where there's not full understanding of it. I think people still, for some people that have been around or, or read older papers, uh, don't truly understand how the classification works don't really know how to do, how to perform the examination. Uh, part of it is because it's a lengthy examination. Uh, you have 28 dermatomes on each side of the body for a light touch and pinprick. You have the myotome exam, you have the sacral examination. So I think that, you know, these are areas, education is, is so critical to the field. I do want to say that the Standards Committee of Asia, working with our international colleagues from ISCAS, 
have done a, a really great job at trying to continue to improve on this scale and the examination, making it clearer. And also Asia, American Spinal Injury Association as an organization, the work that they've done on the Learning Center, and I recommend that people look at the Learning Center. And there are so many opportunities at different conferences to learn the techniques of performing the examination. There are algorithms available that people can just put the data into the computer and the algorithm will make the classification. But the algorithm is only as good as putting in the right numbers. And so learning how to do the examination is extremely important. So learning those fine techniques, and I hope that these will continue and experts in the field become comfortable, confident, and competent in completing the examination and then the classification, and then being able to take this information and utilizing it from a clinical perspective, but also from the research perspective as well as one of many other different types of outcome measures. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, we certainly go through that as PM&R trainees and learning how to do the exam and, you know, wanting to just write down the things and put it into the algorithm without truly like acknowledging what the impact is for the person that we're doing the exam with. Uh, I think that's such a good point. If you, you know, in all your experience in doing this exam and all your experience with clinicians and trainees, if you could pinpoint like somewhere that clinicians tend to go wrong or that's the common pitfalls, what would you say you observe most commonly? So areas of pitfalls that I think that I've seen are one, putting muscles in the right positions and when we examine them. There are so many different compensatory mechanisms that people with spinal cord injury can use. And it's not just people with spinal cord injury, but people with weakness have it. So there are compensatory activities that can take place that can sort of fool you. A classic example is the elbow extensors. If you don't have the elbow in the right position, or you don't monitor for shoulder movement, you will confuse that the patient may have elbow extension. And this, I could tell you, learning from just looking at someone's grade, I remember admitting a patient, patient was, came and they had, were given a grade of three or five for their elbow extensors. And then the patient transferred to me and I examined the patient and they had zero over five. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, I wonder if they lost their triceps with the travel down and, you know, do I have to do x-rays and MRI to see if there's something new worsened? Uh, but it, it really was that the positioning of the patient. So I think that's one. Two is, I think we'll, we'll hit on the sensory is next is doing multiple dermatomes at the same time, you know, but by saying, well, I can really test four dermatomes with one swipe. Uh, you know, th that doesn't work. You really have to do the different dermatomes and the sacral examination uh, I'll say that people confuse a reflex with voluntary anal contraction. I understand it. It's not comfortable for the patient. It's not comfortable for the practitioner to do the rectal. So they try to do it too quickly. So they tell the patient what to expect. And as they're putting their finger into the rectum, they say, okay, squeeze down, you know, bear down. And then they go in and they feel the reflex and taking that as voluntary anal contraction. Uh, and so that, of course, if you have voluntary contraction, can make you automatically into a Asian impairment scale C. And then, of course, the next person that, that tests the person may not see it. And the person then will feel that they worsened from a motor incomplete to a motor complete. And this, by the way, that specific issue was a, a really written about 
and how it hurt really some of the research projects that were done because people who were the examiners for that project may not have really truly uh, understood the difference between uh, voluntary contraction and a reflex. Yeah, I think that that brings up this this point of the reliance on one Inski done, maybe let's say the first for the understanding the relative change for the rest. So you have this this linchpin. The first one goes wrong, you're going to have quite a situation of tracking things. So I guess that that kind of shifts us toward the research and the development side of this. So on the development side, let's say you were to optimize the exam because this exam has gone through iterations, right? It's been based on previous exams. Let's say you were to make it shorter. How would you go about doing that? You know, so that there's been a, a movement within the standards committee to come up with called an e-inski to make it a, a little bit quicker. But understand, and I mentioned it in this article, so hopefully people will read through the article to understand that you only do the abbreviated INSCI if you've already done a full INSCI and you're just looking for changes. It's not supposed to be taking over for the examination. I know that a lot of people have said, can't you, and it's not up to me, but can't, can't the field make it easier? Because if you made it easier, then more people would do it. And I, I sort of look back and I say, you know, I'm not sure that that just be making it easier makes it better. I think that we could find ways to make it better, but based upon evidence, and there's a lot of people looking into that, and certainly some of the committee members looking into it as a whole, but I would never tell a cardiologist, you really don't listen, need to listen to the heart in all those different areas. Can't you make it easier? And can't we just put this stethoscope right by the xiphoid? I can listen to bowel sounds, I can listen to the heart, and I can listen to the lungs all at the same time. Wouldn't that be easier? So yes, but would it be better for what we're trained to do? I like to think that we're spinal cord experts, and there's a reason why you're an expert. Not because you can do a more, a more thorough exam, but because you can do a more thorough exam that will give information that will be critical for the progress of the individual patient from a clinical perspective, from a functional perspective, from a research perspective. Doing a bad exam and including in a patient into a research project, you're not helping the patient. You're hurting the study, you're hurting the science and also potentially hurting the patient too. So uh, I think it's really important to understand that it is in depth, but in depth means you're really trying to get good information out of it. Okay, that brings us up to our last question here. You've made some strong arguments for the use of the, the results of this exam for research purposes. Originally, it was not developed as a prognostic, right? So as an outcome, it can be useful in terms of research, but can you talk about the strengths and limitations of using the exam results as inclusion and exclusion criteria for participation in research? That is such an important question because it really brings up many other questions that perhaps could be a topic for another conversation, which is what exam is the right time, right? Is it, can we rely on an early exam? How early of an exam can you rely on? Uh, can you examine a patient in spinal shock? These are all questions that people ask me and I'm sure ask, a lot, ask you uh, as well. I think that the, you need some criteria. And while the INSCI and the Asian impairment scale is not perfect, 
I also remember of the term of that the enemy of good is perfect. And I'm not sure there is anything perfect across the board. There's so many outcome measures we have. Just look at functional outcome measures for the upper extremity and spinal cord injury. And I would ask people, tell me the best one, and you'll hear all different opinions. The benefit of the INSCI, the benefit of the exam, the benefit of the Asian classification is not that it's the A plus perfect way, but it is the best communication tool that we have to be able to describe things, but understanding that there are other issues at play. We need to take into account age and any other comorbidity that may go along with it, body habitus, concomitant brain injury, concomitant other injuries, zone of partial preservation, all of these things I tried to mention within the uh, paper itself that will help us use it as an appropriate means for both an inclusion exclusion criteria, as well as perhaps as an outcome measure as well. Yeah, I found that conversation in the paper about the confounding variables super interesting because we just don't get the textbook people uh, that we're treating in rehab. And so, you know, considering all these other variables is obviously really important. Uh, I found that conversation to be really exciting. Well, Dr. Kirschblum, this is, we're about to wrap up, but we wanted to give you kind of our last question that we like to ask everyone that comes on our little podcast is, so if somebody is going to design a follow-up to your study, what would be the research question that you would want them to examine? What do you think they should come up with after reading your paper to start the next, the next study? So I think that the next best thing is to say, is it correct? You know, as a clinician and as a scientist, to some degree, our goal is to put out what we think based upon all the current literature is most correct. But that doesn't mean that there aren't new things that could be learned, that there are new advances. I'm hoping that there's greater knowledge regarding the use of biomarkers, the use of MRI that could be correlated with these examination activities, and then come up with even a better mechanism of being able to truly understand what are the potential predictors of neurologic recovery And then most importantly, using this information, how can we help people surpass what the basic neurologic recovery could be? Thank you for tuning into this episode of the first season of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendations of Asia's International Standards Committee. The podcast is made possible thanks to the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh and the efforts of the producers and hosts, Marla Petriello, David McMillan, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.